no, it's not going to steal your job because it's not smart in the way we are smart. However, because we are creative and humans are, they have different capabilities, I don't think could be replaced in like five to 10 years or even like 50 to 100 years, some, some of them. However, a person who uses AI very efficiently will steal your job. Welcome to the business of fun the podcast that pulls back the curtain on the industry's hottest games to find out what's going on behind the screens. We are going to invite mobile gaming experts to spill the tea on their game success, how they work, why they work, and what they've learned along the way. Here's your host, Jonathan Fishman. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Business of Fun. I'm your host, Jonathan Fishman, and I'm super happy to be here today with Umut Armej, the co-founder and CEO of T-Play Studio. How are you doing, Umut? Hello, everyone. I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing uh, pretty good. I'm here from uh, sunny Tel Aviv. And today we wanted to do an episode about uh, AI and how it's uh, shaping mobile games. And I'm super excited to pick your brain about this. But before we start, do you mind like talking a bit about your path and how you got to uh, found uh, T-Play and, and what the company actually do and what kind of games you're specializing? Sure. I would be happy to talk about our interesting and exciting journey. I used to live in the United States. Uh, I spent about like 10 years there. I used to live in New York and I came back in 2018 and uh, I was going to move to Germany because my wife is German, German-Turkish. and as I was planning all my moves, like procedures and legalities, all that, I met my current co-founders, Ahmed and Osman, in Denizli, which is my hometown. And they, you know, after we had a few conversations, I realized that they're already doing something great. And then they asked me to join and do it for good. And I said yes. And I had a plane to Düsseldorf on a Friday. I think it was uh, the last Friday of uh, 2019 March, and I didn't get on that plane. So it was a last minute decision. We stayed. I stayed at my mom's apartment. How dramatic was yeah. it? Were you with suitcases uh, going to and like stop, yeah. stop? Yeah, it's so funny because I said goodbye to all my friends, like farewells and all that. Everyone cried, and then the next day I said, "Oh, I, I'm not going." And the people actually got angry at me, like, <laughs> why, "Why did you do this to us?" People were gonna say, even my mom, like was a little bit upset but at the end they were all happy that we stayed and i'm happy that i stayed because that was one of the best decisions i made in my life because that turned out to be the right move and we grew really fast uh, we partnered up with frolic which was acquired by zinga afterwards early on and we launched our first game water shooting which was about like tiktok instagram at its peak it was a huge hit and after that, we launched an accelerator program with Rolex, which also turned out to be a huge success because we generated 40 million downloads from that accelerator, which is basically copying and pasting what we did with Rolex for other teams in Turkey in the hypercasual vertical. So you kind of like worked so, with uh, independent developers, like inviting them. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yes. Yeah, think about Y Combinator. But for Turkish hyper-casual teams and in exchange of a profit share publishing deal. So no equity exchange. So they keep 100% of their equity, but we just made a deal and we get a cut 
of the profit if we launch a game. If not, the money is burnt, you know, no questions asked. And that beta business model turned out to be a huge success. And afterwards, we launched another game. In total, we generated more than 80 million downloads on App Store and Play Store. We started doing other genres, other platforms, such as uh, HTML5 games. We partnered up with Singa. I'm sorry, Snapchat. We even got into their accelerator program and got a small uh, investment from them. But then they closed the game section, unfortunately. And we are working with TikTok and other platforms to launch uh, instant games. And also, we are working on our first AA attempt on PC. It's a co-op horror game. It's a PC game. And we are very enthusiastic and excited about that. So in a nutshell, what Tipley Studio is, it's more like a holding company that has multiple gaming studios in it. At our peak, we were like 83 people. We had three offices, but now we shrank a little bit because of the macroeconomic situations like any other company. So we are around like 50 people right now. But future is bright. I'm very optimistic about the Turkish ecosystem. I don't believe that we use the potential as much as we could. I, I still believe that there's a lot of areas that Turkish developers, publishers can cash in on. So we are going to be working on that as well. So in a nutshell, we are a scale-up. And uh, it's our fourth year. Our next milestone is to have a good IP, both on mobile and other platforms. Mm -hmm. Nice. I do want to ask you a few questions about that. Like, what do you think? Because a lot of the world is looking to the great success story, which is the Turkish game ecosystem that, for those of you who don't know, like, I don't know, 10, 9, 8 years ago, it almost didn't exist. What do you think is like the secret sauce that, that got like the, the ecosystem to be that successful? And again, another follow-up question that a lot of people are asking and I'm interested in, and I think it might be a bit unfair, but a lot of people say, all right, this is a, just a hyper-casual industry. And, and I think that's like a wrong assumption. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely not just hyper-casual, I can tell you that. But let me start with the first question. So to start with, Turkish gaming ecosystem has a really good foundation, surprisingly. Turks are very into computers. Very, like, I had a computer when I was a kid, Commodore 64. And, you know, my mom is a teacher, was a teacher, and my father was, you know, we had a store. So we were not rich. We were okay. But even though we had a computer, and it was kind of expensive at that time, but we did that because it was like so popular amongst kids. And, you know, one of the first games I played on Commodore 64 was developed by a Turkish guy who, who was living in London, maybe Dinch. People know him as Mag. So it started very early. I'm talking about 1980s. I'm 43 years old. <laughs> and, you know, if you think about all the companies before the hyper casual boom, like Crytek, Worlds, you know, Peak, these are like huge companies. Some of them are unicorns right now. So we had a good foundation to start with. But what changed the whole thing is that I believe a combination of different things. First of all, it was the right time. People were looking something simpler to play, the snackable games or whatever you call it. And Turks are very good at doing things in a short, in short bursts, to be honest. We're not very good in like planning like five, 10 year plans. And that also has a reason because 
the economy is not stable, you know, the politics and all that, things can change dramatically. So people are focused on what they have right in front of them. Wow, man, I connected that so much because I think there's like two, <laughs> it's a huge commonality between Turkey and, and Israel where I'm from. Because in Israel, like the, we, I think the gaming industry in Israel is developing, but it's not even close to where it can be and similar to what Turkey has. But very early on, like in Israel, for the same reasons, high tech scene emerged and there were a lot of startups and that was kind of the thing to do. But the beginning of that was like build a company and sell it as fast as possible because of the same thing. Because like the, <laughs> yeah. you said the economy isn't stable. In Israel, it was more of like historical reasons that I can connect to like uh, the history of the Jewish people and like focus on the now. Like who knows what's going to happen in five or 10 years. But now it's changing. And I think in both countries and like, and yeah. huge companies emerge, yeah. So and you're absolutely right. And you know, I always call like uh, Jewish and Turks uh, like cousins. We are so similar. We are cousins, uh, yeah. Yet, yet we have a lot of in quotes fights. You know, like but, like uh, uh, brothers that uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you know, it's the same. Like, uh, like when I was living in New York, I saw it in a better pers- from a better perspective. Because you know, when you're in New York, when you see a guy from Israel, you feel like. You see your neighbor because the food is similar to the culture. So I feel closer to a guy from Israel than, let's say, a guy from uh, Kazakhstan in that terms because uh, we have a lot to share, more more to share. But anyways, regarding the industry, uh, the gaming industry in Turkey and the boom, I think it was a combination. I think the timing was right, as I said. And we already had a foundation that was important and short bursts, like the shortcuts, mentality of the hyper-casual scene, you know, just was a perfect fit because, you know, you have to build a prototype and it's funded most of the time, you know, so you don't have to think about money. You're not burning your own money and you do this and that and then see results and then it's either go or kill and then you go do next thing and this just was a you know very good path to grow on for a lot of Turkish teams. And also, we had like 8 million university students when like this boom happened and 1 million unemployed grads. So there were like millions of people to, to choose from for companies that are growing. And this is not just Rolex. This is like all, all the companies who had an exit or who became successful so people who are working in unrelated industries like if they could be salesmen they could be working in like banks or fintech or whatever you know they were transferred immediately and reskilled in a really fast way to become successful developers publishers etc so the a combination of these things just created a very unique opportunity for turkey and turkey saw the light at the end of the tunnel and just went for it and scored the goal. And I have to say, as a person who spent like 11 years abroad, one year in Norway, 10 years in, in, in the US, we are hardworking people. So that's one of the good things about it. So we worked our asses off. That's a part of it because I remember how I worked. And I, I saw all these teams working really hard, like uh, the accelerated program of one. It's not a coincidence because First of all, it was the right time. We had a foundation, talent pool, all that. And then we worked our asses off. Then, you know, it's, it's perseverance, basically. 
but in short bursts. If this was happening in like mid-core, I, I, I don't know if we could have the same success. But yeah, let's not forget that, for example, Peak Games was not producing hypercasual. Tailworth and all these companies I mentioned. So it's not just hypercasual. There's an illusion that, it, oh, it's just hard. No, it's not. When Zynga bought Peak, it was generating a million dollars a day, the game. You know? <laughs> so so and it, it was not just hypercasual. Yes. Cool. What a great explanation and a refreshing view. All right, so let's talk a bit about AI and how, from your perspective, it's, it's going to shape or already shaping the, the mobile game industry. I think, you know, this last year with, uh, or, you know, late last year with ChatGPT basically popularizing all of AI and like basically catching the attention of the entire world and what AI can do. And then up to this moment, there's like a billion different startups working on insane AI models that can do a lot of things with generative AI, stuff like the mid-journey that can create creatives yeah. and the pace in which it's progressing is insane. I mean, it's like, I remember that six months ago, it, it was cool. You could play around with it and create like these dreamy type of creatives, but now it's getting close to like creating stuff that, that you can use. Microsoft launched their own, uh, it's called Designer, like a product that you can create, that you can generate creatives, but then you can also edit them. And, and Adobe is doing the same thing now. So it's definitely catching the attention of everybody working in, in UA that needs to create ad creatives. But how do you, how do you view this like uh, changing the way that games are being ideated, developed, and published? It's going to change so dramatically that we don't even know how it's going to work out. I don't think anybody who's talking about five years from now knows what he's talking about unless he's saying like a big change is going to happen and i don't know what it is because it's like internet think about the dot-com boom in 2000 the pet dot-coms and all that people were thinking something was going to happen but with the wrong idea they had the right conclusion something happened after all but not pet.com right like facebook happened instagram happened tiktok happened so it's going to be similar, I can tell you that. And don't uh, forget that the quantum computers are going to change it even more drastically. It's going to make things even crazier. So nothing is going to be the same again. Let me start with that. I have a few ideas, obviously, like regarding how we can use AI, etc. But I can say, let me start with the biggest fear. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. Like people who listen to us, their big biggest question, in my opinion, is that, is it going to steal my job? And the answer is yes and no. No, it's not going to steal your job because it's not smart in the way we are smart. However, because we are creative and humans are, they have different capabilities, I don't think could be replaced in like five to 10 years or even like 50 to 100 years, some, some of them. However, a person who uses AI very efficiently will steal your job. So yes. I love yeah. that. Yeah. I also uh, heard that <laughs> sentence. Uh, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure where and who said it first, but I really like the sentence. Like it, th that's already happening. I mean, oh, you yeah. can see people if you, uh, I don't know, I have uh, a friend who's a screenwriter, like a completely different uh, area. And uh, like I've, went to visit him uh, a few days ago and like I see him like working with ChatGPT and like just working like 10 times faster than he used to work. Not on like getting creativity, just like on 
doing very fast things that were very boring to him, like um, just getting a text, making it more concise, like fixing typos, grammar, stuff like that, and just got him to be way faster. And what that did, that really caught my attention and got me to think about gaming and, and our industry as well, is it got him to be more creative because he spends way more time on thinking. Exactly. Yes, that's the right approach. That's the right way to think about it. Because let's talk about something that is not related with gaming industry. Let's talk about film industry, which is also creative. So very similar, film industry and video game industry. Much smaller industry. Yeah, but, you know, film is still a big business, right? So there's huge, in quotes, danger there too. Let's think about a scenario where we have like cameras, microphones flying with drones that create no sound or the sounds are eliminated with AI. So there's no boom operators, no cameraman, so no dollies, no, nothing. So it's all cameras and the director doesn't direct the cameras. The director directs the movie by saying things to AI, his assistant director, assistant meaning AI, you know, AI-powered AD, saying things like, I want this scene to look like, I don't know, this scene from this movie or more like emotional or I want a dramatic, blah, 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 whatever. And then based on the prompts, the cameras, the, you know, flying microphones and lights and all that effects, are happening in real time, including CGI. And then the actors are real and they are all focused and they're watching it. And then they're saying like things like, okay, let's take it again. This time do this, do that. But now they see the end result. Actors see it, the directors see it, or something very similar to the end result. So now they have a better understanding of the output. So now we take it for granted that, hey, you shoot a movie and then you see the end result like three months from now, the earliest, because of post-production and all that. But what if you're going to release the movie like next weekend? So you're shooting it and you're correcting it as you shoot it. How perfect that movie will be. Think about it. So it's not a bad thing that there are no boom operators. That boom operator is now shooting his or her own film, maybe, or starting a company. So I don't think just because we, you know, abandon horses, the guys who sell horses will, will be unemployed. They will sell cars or they, they will do something else. We're not going to just die because AI is here starting. You know, we're going to just find better things to do, making decisions, you know, cultivating cultures enabling people to do other things. So these are things AI cannot do yet. 100%, yeah, 100%. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, yeah. So thinking about like a game studio, where do you see, even right now, like uh, AI helping folks in different uh, professions to work better and faster? Yeah. Jonathan, let me give you an idea of how T-Play Studio uses it as we speak. So first of all, you know, we have ChatGPT. We just introduced Bard to all of our employees. We enabled it on Google Workspace, and we already have MidJourney. So we are using all these AI tools for ideation, research, debugging, etc. Already. How do I mean? Let's I don't know debugging. Like 
Are people actually like providing the code to something like, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Just, they just copy and paste the code and say debug. And then it debugs it and that tells what it did. Sometimes it's stupid, but when it's right, it's right. And when it's right, it saves a lot of time. So you, you try it like 10 times, even like do, doing research. But right now, for example, let's, let's say... What kind of research? We wanna, yeah. Let's say we, we want to brainstorm about a potential hole in a vertical, meaning that there's an opportunity and nobody filled that gap yet. Let's say there's, there's no game, we think, that has push and pull mechanics in a mid-course setting with this theme, and I'm just making this up, right? We can ask Bard if such a game exists and it tells us, it gives us a list with who it is, like location, founder, name of company, website, daily activism, monthly activism, if it was on the internet, right? But this saves us like, I don't know, weeks? Because, yeah, because it's so hard. I just uh, had a uh, flight to Istanbul and it got delayed, right? So I had, I had an hour to kill. And I love that hour because you are supposed to be on the plane. So people don't call you. So that's your hour, right? And I, I ordered like, I don't know, something to drink. And I'm with my computer. And I wanted to explore a vertical. I'm not going to name it right. But I made ChatGPT create a table with columns that has a list of games that has a specific game mechanics and a specific theme, monthly active users, generated revenue, Name of the company, founder, location. I said, I just, I just studied for an hour. I just played all every single game. I was a smarter person in the plane because of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that. that that's that? it's really, really cool. I mean, they're just again, it accelerates. Like that's exactly. I mean, you as as a co-founder and a CEO, you want to spend most of your time actually playing the games and getting a feel for them, and it just got you more time to do that instead of uh, either researching it yourself or. Or even asking another person to come into research for you, which would stop them from working on a game or thinking about games. Yeah. Even if you have an intern, let's say. Yeah. Just think about the time you spend explaining that intern what you want and giving feedback because it's not going to be perfect. So it saves a lot of time, but it's not just um, ideation and research. What about the actual game game production? Like that's like, are you oh, yeah. thinking like th there are some interesting startups talking about like in-game content, uh, you know, generating like all the, the in-app purchases, items, I don't know, uh, skins, stuff like that. And I also wanted to ask you about like ad creatives, like on the publishing yeah. side. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, there are huge opportunities. I'm not going to name any company, but there are really cool companies, startups who are trying to literally convert ideas to games. I'm talking about using game engines to create games based on prompts. Yeah, technically it's why that, I mean, I'm also thinking about the future and again, not trying to assume that they yeah. know exactly how it would pan out, but technically the ability to do that would be, it kind of exists today to a very certain level. I mean, prototyping, to, but if you like actually imagine the internet in 1999 and how it was in 2010 yeah. or 2020 even, it's like, why wouldn't you be able to create a game without knowing how to code in, I don't know, develop a game on Unity? But you would be able to describe the game and you'll have like yeah. 20 variations of concept that you can start testing. I don't know, something like that. 
Not only that, it would give you, for example, let's say you're working with Unreal or Unity or Cocos or Play Canvas, whatever your engine, it can give you a project. So if you'd like some things, you can keep it and change others. Or even better, you can give another prompt to correct it. So you basically iterate with prompts, not with coding and, you know, you, you don't do the legwork. So by time, you basically become a prompt engineer as a developer. A director. Let's call it a director, as you said. I like it. Director, yeah, director. I love So you, because engineer doesn't highlight the artistic part, you're right. The director just tracks the game production with just, you know, prompts. And it's already happening. There are already some startups who are doing that. And asset creation is another area which is integrated in this whole uh, directing and game production with AI-powered tools setting. And that's already happening too. There are companies who are converting uh, illustrations to 3D models. There are companies who are converting text to models, text to animation. You can have an iPhone and dance in front of the iPhone and then it gives you an FBX file. And this is crazy. It was unheard of. And this is all thanks to AI. So the future is bright. For example, we are now partnering up with a company who is creating, uh, which is creating assets based on your assets. So you upload your assets. That's so what I was referring to. Yeah, there's a company who can upload yeah, yeah. some of your game assets and it creates a ton of variations. And uh, yeah. like, just imagine that being used by a company working on a merge game that has like a billion different uh, creatives, to, uh, like in-game creatives yeah. to create. And they create something that is very close to production quality. Jonathan, I'm going to like give you an idea right now. And I want any listener to steal this idea, convert it to... You know, a startup will be more than... Maybe I'll steal it first. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because you, you mentioned, you know, the game production side and also the ad network, right? Mediation and all that. So there's that side. So this is about user acquisition. How about a company which generates ads based on current trends with AI? I'm talking about creatives, like Facebook creatives, like 12-second videos to be tested with $50 each per campaign. And then if there's a CPI, like 25 cents CPI, from there's no game, by the way. It's just generated by AI. Then you can sell it to publishers. They can bid on it. I pay $1,000. I pay $2,000. It's free market. So if you catch a fish, like a 13 cents CPI video, you can sell it for thousands of dollars, maybe tens of thousands of dollars. And you can do it in a crazy scalable way. There's no stopping. Like you can test it as much as you want. And it's not that hard. So I'm I'm expecting to see this kind of companies in the near future. I have another question for you that is like I heard it also from a few folks because I like to talk about this topic. It's a bit philosophical, but about this in on but let's take it into the gaming industry. Everybody has access to the same AI tools. Like it's kind of democratized. I mean, the same models, all right? So there's ChatGPT. Everybody can use ChatGPT. Everybody can use yeah. MidJourney. Let's say the entire industry can use all of these AI mm-hmm. models. What is going to be the competitive advantage of the future? Because if we think back, like the competitive advantage was 
first of all, resources, like a game company that has resources to put in the crazy amounts of investment that developing a new game requires. Taking into account, of course, the hit ratio and the percentage of games that actually make it to, to be live games. And the resources it requires to operate a live title and support the game over time. And of course, UA dollars that are extremely important in, in the business of games. But let's, let's say that now everybody can use AI and they can create games or concepts or, you know, with way less resources. What's going to be the competitive advantage of like a game company from the future? Like where, yeah. what is it going to be? Is it going to be who, I mean, my assumption is going to be who directs it better. And that goes to who understands how to create fun experiences better. That's one. And the second is it relates to data. Who has the best data that he, uh, you know, trains the machine on. And that would lead to a word that, you know, these, the models are democratized, but not the data. I mean, you would have like a private instance yeah. of some model trained on your data and nobody else would be able to use that. And whoever has that, the data would win. What do you think about that? I agree with all the things you said regarding who's going to benefit this from more. My number one differentiating factor will be open-mindedness. Meaning that there's a crazy amount of resistance towards AI amongst like high-skilled individuals. I'm talking about executives. I'm talking about artists, veterans who dislike AI. Like it's it's weird, but they it's a it's a it's a school of thought. They say AI cannot be as good as humans. We're different, right? They cannot steal or just, they cannot do what I want, what I want to do. I'm better because I'm human and I'm special and this and that. I don't believe in this because AI is created by humans as well. And the people who can use AI are smarter, in my opinion, who choose to use. I know it's a, it's a hard take, but I take this wholeheartedly. So I'll, I expect to see people with like 25 year experience from like AAA game company resisting using AI in their workflows because they believe that what they know is better. But at the same time, a young guy, a 23 year old kid who can use AI in a very effective way, who basically grew up on AI, can do things he cannot because now he has the access to the assets that guy, resistant guy, produced. And also from a developing being from a develop developing country, it can actually make it easier for him or her to get access to data because it's not gonna be that restricted if you think about it. It's a great point because yeah. it's like it, it gets me thinking like we get all excited and I worked up on, on these yeah. different applications that exist today. Like, oh my God, I put in a text and it corrected the grammar. And to our, I have a daughter, maybe our, our grandchildren, I mean, our grandkids, they would hear that and, and they would think the same thing that we think about somebody telling us, oh my God, I created a computer program that adds, you know, numbers and gives me the results in the terminal. Uh, like from, uh, you know, decades ago. Yeah. So that's how it's going to sound to them. Like, I can't believe they got excited about that very simple thing. So I, I'm <laughs> definitely I'm definitely with you on the fact that open-mindedness is yeah. really important because, you know, history teaches that, like, at least 
current history and, and like the, the near past teaches us that people that didn't adopt technology were not the ones that, that got to win. Yeah. So, yeah. But I have to add one thing here because what I've said so far could be mistaken as if I said AI is going to change everything for good, everything is going to be better, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think so. Because we don't, the territory is not the map. In other words, if we think about these philosophical questions and AI hey, should do this, AI hey, should do that, that, we miss the biggest point, which is wrong, like bad people, ill-minded people can use it for terrible, terrible reasons and create catastrophic things. I'll give you an example that isn't like even the most catastrophic thing. There's a company, I also won't mention their name, that created a really good model to create text to uh, speech that you basically send out, like they got it to be that good that you can send it out like uh, two, three minutes of your audio, like, like you're speaking to, like you're doing a WhatsApp audio yeah. uh, message. It takes those two, three minutes and everything you write sounds exactly like you would say it with like, you know, pauses to breathe. And it's like, I created one for like a model about for my voice. I played it, like some recordings it created to friends and they thought it was me. So there's nothing, wow. nothing that prevents anyone. That's why I'm not saying the name of the company, <laughs> but there's nothing that prevents anyone <laughs> to go there and use other people's voice and get them to say yeah. horrible things. And don't think about like, I don't know, getting uh, somebody to Donald Trump voice or Elon Musk to say something. Think about somebody that's really like, I don't know, a criminal and he wants to, or just somebody that wants to do something bad to somebody. He just makes up like he said something, send it to a friend of his and it creates like mayhem. Yeah. So the, yeah. I agree with you. There's adoption should be, I mean, I do believe that people should adopt AI, but we should be careful and, and we should expect a lot of bad players existing in, in the space. It, it should be regulated. That's it. Like that, there should be huge amounts of rules, procedures to deploy AI in different verticals. And it's not there. So, you know, uh, in the first years of uh, flight, you know, when we start having like airlines and planes, you know, they didn't have any rules. And until like two planes crashed <laughs> in the air, I'm, I'm laughing now because it's like, I don't know, 70 years. But how stupid is it that we didn't even think about it? Oh, like the planes need to just, can, they just cannot just fly. They have to follow procedures so that they don't overlap. So they come up with that after a lot of people died. So people like Elon Musk is voicing these concerns. And I agree with them. There should be regulations. There should be sets of rules, etc. But at the same time, AI is the biggest thing we achieved so far in terms of technology, in my opinion, at least. I do have a projection here that goes into like the competitive yeah. advantage and I talked about data. Because I do think that at some point it would reach a phase that, you know, it is based on the models would be democratized, but the competition would be who has the better data to teach their models. And that would probably trigger a point in time in which people are very protective of their data. Because again, going to the bad players, what prevents somebody like that young person that you talked about, basically asking AI to steal a lot of the things that you have in your game, 
in your games. You created games with creativity, with a ton of people, a ton of work. The AI can basically access these games and learn exactly what you did and create tiny variations. And that young guy is, is young. He's doing stupid things. And he wants to just be a copycat that exists on the App Store for ages now. And just create a, a copycat uh, game based on, on your own, but in a minute. Just may, makes the bad behavior way easier. So I think people would be very protective of their data. And I hint, I'm saying that because there is a hint from ChatGPT that uh, basically they're preparing for the launch of the ability to browse the internet with plugins and all of that. Mm-hmm. And they kind of said, before we do that, we just want to make sure that if you have a website and you don't want our AI crawling uh, your website, you need to add like a, a tag similar to like asking Google not to crawl your website. So the same thing. Yeah. And, and like, because it like, Think about even even Bard, like that's, they crawl your website, they generate a response based on your content that you own, they sell an ad next to it. So I think that the data part is going to be super critical and getting rich data in in the gaming industry about games and what makes good games, good mechanics, what creates a fun experience. That kind of data is going to create a huge competitive advantage for the companies that create it in a way that AI can can learn. I agree. And the data topic is a very sensitive topic and especially big companies kind of misuse it, take advantage of the fact that people are very insecure about their, sharing their data. But let's remember that there are two perspectives here. Sharing data can be bad if Facebook uses their data to, let's say, support a candidate, which they did, you know, or Cambridge Analytica, very similar thing. They used micro-targeting with data to support a certain candidate. So these are not cool. IFDA, uh, Apple says that, oh, I'm giving you more security. I I keep your data. But in fact, what they're doing is they're increasing their market share. Stuff like that. But don't forget, the same things actually help you, the sharing data, to have a better life. Like, even Google Maps, like Uber, Expedia giving you recommendations, Wikipedia, all that. So th- there are good things and bad things regarding sharing data. If we can make it more regulated, I believe that there is a path we can take where AI uses data to improve our lives. The other possibility is there. I'm not ignoring it. So AI can make our lives hell, especially in countries like my country, my data is demanded by uh, governments and the companies who operate are enforced to provide that data. There's no other way or they shut down like paper, you know? So the future is bright, but there's also dangers. And I think the solution has to do with regulations, like global consensus-based regulations. Yeah. I agree. Cool. So we're running out of time. If uh, folks want to reach out to you, can they uh, reach out to you on LinkedIn? What's the best way to reach you? They can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn by typing my name or they can shoot me an email, umut at tplaystudio.com. I would love to hear about you guys. So thank you. Thank you for listening. It was great, Jonathan. You know, the great conversation. And I hope to see you soon. Yeah, I'm going to see you in person in Istanbul in uh, two, three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. That's a wrap on this episode of The Business of Fun. To learn more about Zynga and Chartboost, 
and how we can help you on your mobile gaming journey, visit chartboost.com. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.